Hello, welcome to episode six of the F-Rated podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and podcaster. And I'm Holly Tarquini, founder of the F-Rating, which gives films written and or directed by women an intersectional feminist stamp of approval. Because even though we're more than half the population, women are still vastly underrepresented in our film industry. Holly, I was actually having a look at the F-rated films listed on the website. For those of you who haven't been there, it's f-rated.org. It was just funny because there's everything from Frozen to Heaven Can Wait to Firak, which is by the Indian actress and director Nandita Das. But Frozen, that was a bit of a surprise. Well, do you know, Frozen, I think it came out in about 2017. Frozen, it was the first ever Disney film to be directed by a woman. But it wasn't directed by a woman. It was co-directed by a woman. And also, wow. do you know that Frozen, story about two sisters who save each other, and it's a beautiful story mm. about sister, sisterhood and friendship. Guess which characters speak more, the male characters or the female characters? Oh, gosh. This is going to be the depressing answer, the male characters. Yeah, of course. And then the ads, <laughs> they had to put Jeez. the snowman because they didn't want to put the boys off because girls are taught to see the world through male eyes and wow. boys aren't taught to see the world through female eyes. And you think how yeah. much of the issues that we suffer could be solved if mm. we were just all taught the empathy of looking through other people's eyes. Mm. Mm. Well, if you have listened to the first five episodes, there's, there's plenty of recommendations on there of films that look at the world through female eyes. Uh, some of the films there, if you haven't already, put them on your watch list. Suffragette, Rocks, Shoes by Lois Weber, an old silent era film, Booksmart, Misbehavior, just to name some of the few. But my gosh, today we're, we're going to add to that list and uh, it's we're really going to blow you away, I think, in this yes, one. Yes, because we're talking to one of the UK's best film directors. She was the first black director to win a BAFTA for writing and directing a feature film. She was the first black director to open the BFI's London Film Festival in 60 years. She has an MBE for services to film as a writer and a director, and she's basically a superstar. <laughs> she's Ama Asante, and she started off as an actor on Grange Hill, didn't she, Holly? Yes, I remember watching her I, when I was, I was, sometimes I wasn't allowed to watch Grange Hill. <laughs> Uh, she's gone on to write and direct some magnificent films, including Belle, uh, A United Kingdom, which is a magnificent love story about the king of Botswana and his controversial marriage to a white woman, where hands touch about Afro-German children in World War II. And she's directed episodes of The Handmaid's Tale and Mrs. America. Holly, it... it took you about a year to finally book Ama, which, I mean, we waited and waited and waited. And and when we finally did get to speak to her, she was so generous. She gave us about two hours of her time. So we've split the conversation into two parts. And today you'll hear part one, where Ama shares the stories about her life in London growing up in a Ghanaian family and how she went from being a child actor to secretarial school, that's a very interesting story, to writing her first script. And we'll share part two where she talks about those magnificently layered films later in the F-rated series. So please, please stay tuned for that. And before we give you, Ama, please, please, please give us a star rating. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, give us two stars, three stars, four stars, whatever you want, but just leave us some feedback because we're doing this as a passion project 
And your feedback is really the only recognition, the only payment we're after. It really is. So let's welcome the fabulous Amma Asante. Thank you. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. Also, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Finally, it's taken us a while, but... But we made it. We made it. We made it. And we're so pleased that 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 really sets a scene for all the things that we get to talk about today, Emma. So it's wonderful. We always start with asking our guests about their early life and kind of what made them get into film, because that's an important story to tell, because those who aspire to get into film need to hear how others got there. Um, And so for those people who aren't familiar, you grew up in South London the daughter of Ghanaian parents. Tell me a bit about that life in Streatham. It's it was um it's interesting because I literally just got off of the phone to my best friend who was raised at exactly the same time in North London. And um and and we had, you know, fairly different upbringings in in one sense, very similar in other senses. But whilst her world was very very integrated, mine in Streatham wasn't. We were one of two black families living on our street. So we were we were that black family who owned their home. I was probably about six when we moved to Streatham. It had a pretty, I would say, a fairly heavy sort of national front presence at that time. So, you know, those letters NF were something that I became familiar with felt probably way younger than I ever should have. But on the other side of it, there were whole elements of it that were quite idyllic in some ways. You know, it was a very Ghanaian household. I lived with both my mum and my dad. I had siblings as well. And our world at home was was Ghanaian stroke integrated. You know, my, my parents would speak English and Ghanaian to us. So even though I wasn't born in Ghana myself, I learned or automatically somehow learned to speak Ghanaian. For the first 10 years of my life, I went to a local school around the age of 10 and a half, 11. All of that changed, really, when my my dad came up with this bright idea to sort of support my love for performance that he he felt somehow he had spotted in me and thought it would be really important to send me to stage school. And uh, so instead of going to secondary school, I went to stage school. And at that time, the school that I went to was in Acton. My parents also owned a shop in Shepherd's Bush. And they were very different worlds. They were worlds that were, you know, Acton was a world that had a a large black presence. Shepherd's Bush was a world that had a large black presence. So growing up, I had these two environments and experiences. One was really being quite isolated as a black family. And the other one was just sort of being part of a very, very integrated London. Uh, And I guess both of those things have kind of influenced me as a filmmaker. I I was 10 when I did my first commercial. I was 14 when I got into the TV show Grange Hill. And, And it was really acting for me that led me to writing and led me to really know that that was my that was my calling, really. Tell me a little bit more about your dad before we move on, because he was the one, as you say, who came up with this idea. But he didn't just sort of put you in any old acting school. From what I understand, he really tried to look for a place that was really diverse. Why do you think Why do you think he thought of that? I mean, was it because he was traversing himself these different worlds, one in a kind of national front neighborhood where you lived and then another that was so multicultural? I had a lot of friends, you know, growing up in that very white environment. One of them had started going to a part-time dance class, which was a tap class. 
I copied everything she did. And so I, I copied her and went to the same tap class with her. I would go with her. And uh, my mother, who worked extremely hard, was invited by me to come to a sort of what they called an end of term show one day. And she was never at the parents' days. It was always my dad that was at the parents' day, that kind of thing. I actually closed her shop early, came all the way down to, to Norwood, where this school was, and um, didn't see me perform. And uh, at the end of it, I said to my mother, you know, did you enjoy the show, mummy? And she said, yeah, I did, but you weren't in it, darling. What happened? And I said, well, I was only actually going to be in the finale because that's all they would let me be in at the time. But at the very last minute, the teacher had said that I couldn't be in the finale because the song for the finale was called Blue Eyes and I didn't have blue eyes. My mum was very calm. She went home and she evidently told my dad I wasn't there. My dad said, really? Okay, well, I'll show them. And so I think that it was a very literal decision by him to say, um, I want her in an environment where she can, she is able to express herself. And the only way that can happen is if I send her to a school that is, that is integrated. It dawned on him, good God, these are the kind of experiences my daughter is having and she's only 10 years old. But I mean, he had had, you as a family had had that, you know, you hear this with so many black and brown families living in the UK at the time, uh, graffiti on the house, awful things through the letterbox. I mean, he, he had experienced that. You even talk about how he used to lay metal trays on the mat because of things coming through. He did. Absolutely, he did. And, you know, the, the, the reality is that for, for children growing up in that environment, it's just normal. It, there is no other way to live. You don't know what the options or the alternatives are. So it's just, you know, and and for us, you know, dad was just doing what dads did. You know, he was he, he was protecting us. He also also always used to collect all the knives in the house, uh, the sharp knives in the house every night. He would collect all the sharp knives in the house and take them upstairs with him, all the cooking knives, because he feared that somebody could break in and and use one of those against us. Now, obviously, what happens is a combination. There's a combination there of reality and just anxiety and probably some paranoia as well that kind of all rolls into one. And so, yes, we did. We had the graffiti and we had, you know, his car would be. Uh, systematically destroyed you know they'd never destroy it in one go they'd do something with the windscreen wipers and then we'd come out and the wheel plates would be gone and it was definitely designed to sort of low level terrorize low-key terrorize um on a regular basis and you know for the most part I think these were mainly teenage boys but I got used to that I got used to the idea that you could be walking home from school prior to leaving and going to school in Acton and maybe you might be surrounded by a group of white boys on their bike even though you would just be a young girl that was just life you know I, I do remember a few years later well many years later maybe maybe 15 20 years later looking back from my own home well I owned my own home at that point had the keys to my own front door you know paying my own rent my own mortgage etc and thinking wow how different things were for me as an adult than they were for my my parents when they were close to this age so it's at that those moments that you realize that you were sort of living in a just a toxic environment really outside of the front door you know 
It's so interesting, Emma. And Justin Webb was, you know, obviously completely different circumstances, but he was recently talking about growing up in the 70s and 80s and how much, so how much trauma there was around because that previous generation had gone through the war and obviously then again, if you've immigrated from somewhere, there wasn't even the space or the language to be able to talk about it. We didn't use the word anxiety, let alone really properly talking about racism and the experience of it. No, that's quite right. And I think, you know, I think even when we look back ourselves on, for instance, our last five years, there's so much language that we've now pulled together to be able to describe experiences that we all, you know, so many of us, I won't say we all, but so many of us were experiencing, but we didn't have the language for it. So, you know, for me, the term gaslighting only became a word I I could finally put to my experiences not that many years ago. And I lived in an environment where teachers would gaslight you, you know, teachers would gaslight your parents, you know, your parents would go to the school and say, this is what happened to my kid. This is how my kid has been treated in in school. And a headmaster or a, a teacher would completely dismiss and and undermine the importance of what happened to you as a child, to you often, not always only, but often as a, as a person of colour. And there was no single term that my parents could use to kind of describe what a person who was doing that to them would be doing. Today, we can all simply say, don't gaslight me. And immediately you can you can confront and you can challenge a scenario in a situation in a way that, as you say, we simply didn't have the, the space or the language for at that time. I completely agree. Yeah, and I wonder how many things are coming down the line in the future for brilliant people like you and other storytellers that will allow us to explore not experience, but articulate stuff that has happened to us, understand things that have happened to people who are not like us. There's there's so much more to come, isn't there? I think so. I think so. You know, as we as we record this, this is the uh I think we're in the uh, we're a couple of days before Queen Elizabeth's funeral. And I think what's really interesting, you know, obviously people will study the period of her reign. They will study the period of communications um, and its evolution in the last, you know, during the period that she reigned in the way that they studied the Industrial Revolution. We have come, you know, we've literally gone from a period when when I was a kid. Well, we've gone from, you know, connecting people to calls by sticking, you you know, um, sticking um, pins in in slots and connecting people to literally I was walking down the street the other day and I saw at least two people on their phones FaceTiming. You could see the face of the person that they were talking to. You have no idea what country that person is in. You know, if, if you had taken us in the 80s and delivered us directly into today that would be magical witchcraft or something really terrifying um or we'd be in some kind of on somebody else's planet in many ways so so much has happened in actually a relatively short space of time 70 years is is still a life within a lifetime you know for many people and yeah who knows who knows 70 years from now and within that 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 period you know what we'll be able to to do with storytelling and and expression of experiences because that's what I love to do with my work is express you know take you on somebody else's experience so going back to that the first experience that you took me on was in Grange Hill so Grange Hill uh 
was a groundbreaking children's series which ran from 1978 uh, to 2008. There were 31 series. It dealt with all kinds of issues of the day from drugs to rape to teenage pregnancy. Um, and you were one of the stars of Grange Hill. You played Cheryl. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a really, it was a really kind of surreal, but also very interesting and, um, you know, also practical part of my experience that although by day I would go to the studio and I would, I would, I would shoot this TV series that somehow was trying to um, reflect the shape of teenagers' lives at that time, that I would also come back home to my regular environment, to the, the kind of children that were watching the show, that the show would impact and affect. And so I had these, again, once again, I had this duality to my life where there was sort of this relatively uh, privileged in very many ways environment of the studio. But then there was just my my regular life that I, that I would come home to. And I think the thing that struck me the most was the power of a story. I think that's when I learned the power of a story. That's when I learned the power of uh, what drama and what, and what TV can do, its reach, its ability to re- reflect, influence, shape in many ways and, and create debate and ask questions. I think I was very, pretty young when I, when I understood that because I would come home and I would see the impact on the kids around me that the show had. The show was looking at issues as controversial at that time as abortion, teenage suicide. The first time I learned what a BAFTA was was when the show won one for its storytelling. I was so lucky and so privileged that one of our um, script editors on the show at that time was Anthony Minghella. Come full circle in the first award I'm given is by Anthony, you know, for making a film is by Anthony Minghella. And I just remember um, knowing that Anthony sort of left Grange Hill and went on into continued storytelling in the theatre and then he became a a sort of director in film. And for me, he was the first example I had in the UK of somebody that was more than one thing. He was the example that you didn't, if you were a script editor, you didn't have to stay a script editor if you wanted to be. You You could move sideways, you could... You know, you could do whatever you wanted to do from there. And I think the UK at that time was very much a place of not just racially. What are you? You know, decide what you are. You know, are you a director? Are you a producer? You know, what what are you? You have to be one thing. You can't be many things. And I think he really showed me in many ways, by example, that that wasn't the way that it, it had to be. I can't express enough the influence that working on that show had on me. I can't express enough uh, the amount that I learned about myself and about the industry as well. Very practical things, the language of filmmaking, which can be so isolating if you're new on set and you don't know, the, you don't understand the language of, of filmmaking and television making. Understanding that I loved storytelling, but I was not a good actor. And, 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 and then eventually finding something that I was good at, but knowing that part of recognising what, what a good performance looked like came from my experience of being on Grange Hill. And so there's, there's, there's so much more that I could say, you know, about that show, but it was a, it was a very, very big turning point in my life. 
Um, I wanted to pick up on another point. I mean, that thing you said, you weren't a very good actor. I mean, that, that I guess that's surprising. You kind of think that when people are child actors, that's what they're going to do. And, and yet you didn't. What was it about acting that maybe didn't suit you or that you didn't? Or how did you come to realize that that wasn't your thing? Well, I mean, first and foremost, actress and singer and writer uh, Michelle Gale and I went to the same school and uh, Michelle was the year below me. We've been friends for too many years, way too many years. And Michelle Gale had um, auditioned for my role in Grange Hill before I did. She went on later to take up a different role in Grange Hill after I left. But at that time, she'd auditioned for this role. We were at the same school. She asked for permission to come and speak to me in class and sort of told me they're going to ask for you um, for, to come for this audition. And here's a little bit about the character. And she sort of very quickly told me about the character. But despite that, and despite the fact that in that particular role, they very specifically it had been written for, for a black character, as a black character for a black person. And despite the fact that Grange Hill did brilliantly well in the sense that it did have black characters on the show, this was not a world, when you sw switched on the BBC or you switched on ITV, this was not a world in which you it was a sort of regular event to see black people. And so I'm not saying that they weren't there, but it wasn't, you know, it, it was... I knew that I was do I was very different in what I was doing. So there was a level of self-consciousness. There was a lack of confidence that I had as a, as a child actor. You know, I, I think part of being a wonderful actor is the ability to kind of leave behind the parts of yourself that are not the character and take with you the experiences or elements that you have acquired or naturally are that help you to push the character forward and communicate that to the audience and I was just so completely self-aware that I think you know for me as a director today and certainly as a as a writer you 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 don't need or ever want somebody acting in the way that I was doing because because it, it for me acting and storytelling is about allowing an, an audience to lose themselves in the story and if the actors can't lose themselves then they can't really ask the audience to and for me, I never really could lose who I was and my own sort of fears and self-consciousness, really. That's, that is really fascinating. I mean, that's really interesting that you've got to, as an actor, leave bits of yourself at the door. That makes a lot of sense. What, what is also fascinating is that you had that early success, amazing, you know, national TV program, child actor, but your mom wasn't very convinced that this was going to lead to a career. And so, I mean, I was astonished to read this, that you then decided to go to secretarial school. Yeah, I mean, and when you think about it, I don't think she was to be blamed. I mean, who were these black actors at the time who were making really great careers in, in acting? There weren't that many. She didn't have examples. It wasn't just me that didn't have a sort of plethora of examples of this in the UK. There just weren't great examples of it. And I think that for her, she she had come from a, another country. They had come here for opportunity. They'd come here to give their children opportunity. And the last thing she wanted was for my dad to sort of lead me down a pathway of pipe dreams that would lead to nothing, that would lead to me not having an education, not having trained for any kind of career through any kind of internship or that kind of thing. She just wanted to know that I was going to be safe and that I would be able to have a life in the future where I would be secure and 
put food on the table and have a roof over my head. And and so it became the next big turning point in my life, her saying to me, you must go to secretarial college. But for her, that was to become somebody's secretary was a good job. And she knew I'd sort of missed the prep to kind of go to college and and study for anything academic is what she thought in her mind. And she probably thought, oh God, she's so creative. She'll not be able to do anything academic. What can she do? And secretarial college was the thing that she came up with. And, and as a good daughter, I did what she asked me to do. I very much felt that my, my dad had given me, you know, a great opportunity to have a great deal of fun and earn a little bit of money while I was doing it. But now it was also important to put my mother's heart and mind at peace. And so off I went to Secretarial College in Tottenham Court Road. (laughs) I know, I know where you went. Um, But it was there, wasn't it, that you first started writing a script? We was a little bit after that. So we did work experience, was part of the course. I went to work at William Heinemann Books as an intern and I really loved it I really loved the sort of um writer adjacent world that I was in at that time I really it really made I don't know there was just something that I um instinctively loved that again I didn't have the language for or the words for and it was time to go and get a job that I could be properly paid for but I still needed to get my typing speed up and it was then that I began um sort of writing my first script And just really to get my typing speed up, it was a combination of just sort of copy typing, you know, getting a newspaper article and copy typing the article versus also just writing what was coming out of my head at the same time to get the speed up. And I ended up writing something that was probably about 75 pages, should have been, should have been 30. It was supposed to be a half hour sitcom. It ended up being a movie length, but it was, it was sort of built of understanding a little bit of what scripts look like because I'd been getting scripts on a on a weekly basis from Grange Hill at that time. The world that I had grown up in in Streatham, the world that I had experienced, which was a more integrated world from going to school in Acton, but also Shepherd's Bush where my mum and dad's shop was. There were there were all these worlds and experiences that were swimming around in me and they just kind of I just vomited them all out really in the form of these characters in this world in the first script and I was just very very lucky that somebody that I knew who was American read the script his name was Chuck Sutton um, his family ran the Apollo Theatre in in Harlem and uh, he said you know I, I I think this is really really good stuff and I was on a holiday in America in Los Angeles and he he arranged without telling me until he had arranged it for me to go up to the studios Fox Studios and uh, and I never really give them enough credit and I, I don't talk about these people enough, but I should because I went into a development department. That's all I can remember. I spoke with two women. I remember thinking, not really sort of understanding the imbalance of diversity in the industry, but sort of thinking, wow, there's two women in here. And also not understand in the context of going to a meeting, I had cut down jeans on, a little T-shirt, belly T-shirt, went in there, felt my legs sticking to the leather as I went in there and sat on the leather sofa. And they were so, so good. They were so encouraging and they were so, you know, their thing was really, really wanting me to understand that I, I had the capability to write. They didn't want me to leave that meeting without... Um, knowing that and understanding that and it was then that I came back 
to the UK and thought I, I should give this a go and sent the script out in my mother's maiden name because I was still a little bit frightened to producers that I knew. And then that became the next step, really. That became the next milestone, really. God, that's amazing, Emma. And what a wonderful story that they were so encouraging and that they didn't, you know, reject you for not wearing the right costume to do that meeting. They didn't bat an eyelid. They were a real example of class and how it really ought to be done. And my failure in that moment, obviously not knowing what life would bring going forward, was to know who the hell I was talking to. And Chuck's gone. Chuck died about 12 years ago, so I can't even ask him who were they. And and they, these studios are so huge. I don't even know what department I, I went to to kind of be able to somehow try and trace them through through history in some way. But in, in other ways, just the mere fact that they existed and that they were there and knowingly or unknowingly by default or be, or by design kind of are all a part of the story of how I got to be here and probably many, many others. I just think it's really important. There's just two things I, that really struck me about what you were saying. I feel like most professional women could could write several volumes on those moments when they, they didn't understand, you know, where they were going and, and all the, the missteps. And yet, how wonderful is it? I agree with Holly that, you know, there are people out there who aren't going to punish you for that. And that is such a gift when, when you know, people are giving with their experience rather than judging. And I love the story that it was through improving your typing speed that you wrote your first script. That is just, that is priceless. (laughs) And also such a good kind of shout out to gatekeepers, a terrible name, but anybody that's in those positions of power, the encouragement that you can give to people that probably don't look right for your meeting. I think that that, that it's also a testament also to the power of each of our own voices as to how much a small word of encouragement for us to give to somebody else, how much of a difference that can make in somebody's life. You just never know what it is that you might say to somebody else that they just, that is just a lifeline for them that they hang on to. Look, after that first, sending out that first script in my mother's pseudonym, it led eventually to my, my first TV show, Brothers and Sisters, and at this, while I was actually filming that, I would run away on a Friday and go to college to do my A-levels. And I, you know, my teacher was probably about a year or two years older than me at that time. I mean, maybe, maybe three years older. I was 27. I think he was about 31. And he wrote on one of my essays, you have a deft touch at writing. And I remember holding on to that as well. I just remember that meaning so much. So that I think the power of our own voices to be able to encourage and 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 to not think that you have to be, you know, the president or, you know, for me, like I say, I don't know what titles those women had. And my teacher was, he was the healing to some of the teachers who had not been that great. He was the healing to that. And that that other voice that he offered also made a difference. So it's, it's you just never know. And I think that, that's, that that was another important message that I learned. The outstanding film director, Amara Santi. 
So in a few weeks' time, Amma will talk to us about those amazing films. If you've got time, please watch Bell. It's the true story of Dido Elizabeth Bell, the illegitimate mixed-race daughter of a royal who lived in the late 18th century. It's it's just absolutely magnificent. Yeah, and watch A United Kingdom, which is epic and sweeping and beautiful. Next week, get your musical ears on because we've got a composer who really genuinely must struggle for space and amongst all the awards that she keeps winning. We'll be speaking to BAFTA award-winning composer Nainita Desai, whose work appears in the films For Summer and The Reason I Jump, to name but two films. Yeah, Nainita's a real, real treat. I love the way how she describes the work that a composer does. Now, please, before you go, just take a second to hit that star rating on this podcast. It keeps the algorithm fed, and that makes us very happy. Please share any of our episodes. And if you want to get in touch, you'll find loads of contact info at the F-rated website. You'll also find all the F-rated films. It's f-rated.org. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>